2020 is a year most would argue few will soon forget. I'll just sort of ask in order and then um, we can jump around if need be. But when did you realize that the world was about to change? I can tell you precisely the time at 7.30 on March 11th. Cranes asked Chicago area decision makers, business leaders and workers how the first six months of the pandemic in Illinois have affected them and how the future will be different as a result. I'm a huge basketball fan and I was watching the NBA and it was the Utah Jazz, I think, playing the Thunder. And all of a sudden they start saying the players aren't coming on the court. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. Knowing what you know now about testing... Could you have done anything differently? Well, I wouldn't have waited on delivery of promises from the White House. Having a whole hospital full of same patients, we, you know, like you say, we often see tragedies, but we don't have a whole hospital full of that. Getting emotional just talking about it. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist. It's Monday, July 27th. In these uncertain times, it's important to have people you trust by your side. When 11,000 local business owners needed a payment protection program loan, they turned to their Wintrust banker to secure funding because that's a relationship they can count on. Businesses are navigating some of the biggest challenges they will ever face. Wintrust is here to answer their calls. They'll answer yours too. Start the conversation at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. I'm Danny Ecker, and I cover commercial real estate at Crane's Chicago business. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. Crane's reporters Aidy Quigg and Stephanie Goldberg set out to create an oral history of the first six months of the pandemic in Illinois. They talked with business leaders, decision makers, and workers, and we'll hear some of that audio in a moment. But first, I asked the two reporters about the project. I think we both had this moment at some point last week where we were like, holy cow, like, can you believe it's been six months from the first confirmed case of COVID in Illinois? And we both wanted to do something that would highlight the fact that it's been six months. Because I think for many of us, it feels like many years. I think for both Stephanie and I, this has been a defining story of our past six months, but something on our mind for seven or eight months, because we first started hearing about this in China back around the holidays. I also wanted an excuse um, because we cover this day to day and don't have many opportunities to step back or revisit things that um, came and went so quickly. It was nice to be able to sit down with people and say, do you remember when that happened? Tell me what you were thinking and feeling and what was going on behind the scenes. And the other thing was just amid that daily kind of hustle bustle, we lose sense of the scope of how devastating this has been. 7,300 people have died. More than a million people in Illinois have lost their jobs. Like 4,000 businesses have shut down. So I just wanted a chance to get a grip on, on the scale. You know, the other thing that both of us heard from so many of the sources that we spoke with was that this, this interview was actually like an opportunity for them to reflect. Like everyone's been going a mile a minute. And so somehow taking the time to sit back and think about where we started and where we are now was like a cathartic experience. And I think AD and I both felt that way too. What was your strategy in terms of who you wanted to speak with for this project? What's nice is we have different beats. So there were natural sources that each of us wanted to kind of go back to. Stephanie covers healthcare. So she had uh, 
doctors and business owners and folks in the industry broadly who I know she wanted to reach back out to again. I wanted to talk to decision makers in government and lobbying groups that were deeply affected by this. Um, I was not expecting to have the chance to speak with Governor Pritzker, but he and I got to talk for a good long hour. I also got to talk to his chief of staff. I've got the governor here. We just got the Springfield. Well, thank you for hopping on. Of course. Was there a moment when you said, I give up on the federal government? Look, I've never said that I gave up on the federal government. I, 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 gave, up, I gave up on trusting the promises that were being made by the White House. That I gave up on. Mm-hmm. I was glad if they made promises, but I wasn't counting on it and because I wasn't counting on the delivery on those promises. There were aspects of what the federal government did that were hugely important. Look at what happened at McCormick Place. We did the planning. We asked for the federal government's help. We got the Army Corps of Engineers working with our National Guard and with local tradesmen. And in five days, look what can happen when people work together, when there's leadership. I mean, look what can happen. That didn't come out of the White House, with all due respect. That was a a plan that was worked with HHS with the Army Corps of Engineers, with, uh, like I said, with our National Guard and with local building trades. And five days, I mean, we should all be extraordinarily proud of that. And that, I think, is a demonstration of leadership. And um, we got, you know, we got, there were a, a couple of examples of that. Uh, it was mostly when you would deal with the military. Uh, I, they, they, they really, I think the military, you know, like, like I expect from our U.S. military, I mean, precision, you know, delivery, very impressive. Were you surprised at the fate of the alternate care sites? Did you have any regrets about the resources poured into standing that up, or would you change the way they were intended to work? What did, what did you learn from the alternate care site? Look, you can't go back in time, but if you're asking me, should we have done it differently? Look, we were preparing for the worst and look what happened in new york and look what happened in detroit i mean these things became necessary there was little information about you know how fast this would overtake a city or a state and i always said that you know the best outcome was to not need these things Mm -hmm. i said that many times while we were building them uh but but can you imagine what would have happened if we hadn't built them and, and then we had turned into another New York City? I, I wonder the same thing about, about testing, knowing what you know now about testing, the accuracy of the Abbott testing, availability of equipment. Could you have done anything differently? Well, I wouldn't have waited on delivery of promises from the White House. Um, I, I think in, in retrospect, that, that was probably our biggest mistake early on. And as you know, I learned from that mistake. Um, and so, you know, we, we, we went from being kind of middle of the pack among the states in terms of uh, per capita testing to being among the best in the country. And, and we did that because we had to abandon any reliance upon the federal government and just make sure we were doing everything and anything we could to ramp up testing and then to move on to contact tracing, which we're you know doing now. Testing is the most important thing that you can do, you know, because it allows you to locate outbreaks. Um, and then contact tracing allows you to actually contain an outbreak. And we're doing much more of that uh, since, you know, the as you know, in the beginning, uh, I 
we were getting no help from the federal government. And so I called the governor, the Republican governor of Massachusetts. Um, their contact tracing had been uh, had been written up in the New York Times, I think, and other places and asked him, what are you doing? How did you get it done? What do we need to be thinking about, et cetera? I took a lot of notes. Um, and then I called up uh, Partners in Health and asked them, you know, you guys are obviously doing a great job in Massachusetts. Will you come work with us in Illinois? And now, you know, we have months and months of testing capability uh, and we continue to ramp up our the locations from which we can take tests uh, and our capacity to run those tests. It's a very complex operation. I know people might think it's all about, well, if you get enough swabs, you know, you're good to go. And we looked at everything, AD. We, we looked at should we buy a testing facility like the state of Illinois buying a testing facility and operating it and, and then looking to you know, when COVID might end, or at least the, when the crisis would end, perhaps we could sell it, you know, because the state doesn't need to own a major testing facility. Um, I had talked to the governor of Minnesota, and he had been talking to Mayo Clinic about buying a clinic, a sorry, a laboratory from them. Uh, and, you know, and so that was an idea that we, that we you know, looked at. We ultimately didn't need to. Then I looked at, should I be looking at loaning dollars to existing testing companies so they can buy more testing machines um, so that they can ramp up their testing? Do I need to launch programs for testing technicians, people who can actually run the tests? Mm-hmm. Should I you know, go to our, our community colleges or our universities and you know, how fast can we get somebody you know, graduated and and running one of these machines, uh, you know, where can I get these people from, et cetera. And Stephanie, I turn this question to you. As you first started talking with people, what themes emerged quickest? This idea of building the plane while flying it. And as cliche as that sounds, that felt like the only way to describe what people were telling us. Like, Nobody knew the right answer, but they were being asked these impossible questions. So like Dr. John J. Shannon, for example, who many people will know as the former head of Cook County Health, um, he's advising IEMA now in the midst of COVID. And one of the things he said to me was, do you know what someone asked me early on? They said to me, how many ventilators do we need? Like as if there's going to be a very clear number answer, a numerical answer to that question. And he said, you know, somewhat jokingly, but not like, well, it's somewhere between 3,000 and 30,000. Yeah, and, and it wasn't as though they were going to turn around and say, you know, Shannon says, I need X thousand, go get them. There would then be a conversation about that. And that's just one example of some of the challenges around this. I mean, people were asked the same thing about uh, gowns and masks and, um, and body bags. And, uh, you know, any different piece of this, those questions came up. You know, I was going to ask you what the toughest call that you've had to make is, but it sounds like there's there's not just one. I don't know. I don't know how many you want to give me. How long? How long do you have? <laughs> well, no, but I, I think you know this this again is an important thing to recognize. My role here, I wasn't making tough calls. I was making recommendations to people who had to make tough calls. So that was a different position to be in for me. And and I'm grateful for the people in the leadership positions. You know, from the 
you know, from the governor's office to the head of IEMA to the head of public health, those people are the ones who are making the tough calls. I was just giving them the best advice that I could. And um, so maybe maybe I'll, know, re, I'll reframe then. What was and, and if it was the ventilator example, we can move on. But what was the the hardest question to come up with a recommendation for? So I, I think there are a handful of tough ones. It was, um, you know, what kinds of things are the best metrics to follow as we're working through, are we getting control of this? Or if we are moving through these phases of Restore Illinois, how will we know if things are getting out of control? So that's a tough one. And I worked with a very gifted team of uh, epidemiologists and public health experts to help to, to, to contribute to that thinking. I think the other ones who were, who were tough are those around when is it safe and how is it the safest to, if you will, let hospitals get back to doing what they normally do. So the restrictions that the governor put in early on around elective care were, I think, important, and I think they were appropriate. And as you ask people to look forward and kind of read the tea leaves a bit, what themes emerged there that maybe kind of point to where people's heads are collectively right now? One of the last people I spoke with was um, Allison Arwady, the commissioner of the Chicago Department of Public Health. The number of questions we still have about the virus itself is really, I don't know if the right word is startling, but she said, you know, we have only had access to this. We've only known about this virus for eight months. That's not even the full gestation period of a baby. There's so many other viruses that we've been studying for years and years. And we are also probably years and years from having a good idea of what an effective vaccine is and getting that vaccine out to everyone. They still don't know what the death rate is from COVID-19. Um, it's still at this point, they assume um, eight to 10 times deadlier than the flu. Um, there's, we still don't know what impact it has on pregnancy. We still don't know what the lasting impact is on people that do recover from it. In some cases, we don't know exactly why people, what kind of what the cause of death is. There's just so many, so many questions about the virus itself. And then on the governor's, on the governing side, the long-term budget impacts of this are something I'm going to be watching very closely. Um, we have massive unemployment and we also have massively reduced government revenues. So we have, you know, rising calls for help from the government and a government that is less equipped than ever financially to take care of people. Um, so I wanted to ask you a couple of high level questions, but generally, when was the moment that you realized the world was about to change? Ah, so I'm a history teacher. And um, when I started uh, reading about what's happening in Wuhan. Cook County Board President Tony Preckwinkle. I remembered that there was a, uh, a terrible pandemic 100 years ago. And um, actually, I was browsing in a, a neighborhood bookstore, Powell's Bookstore, and I found in the remainder pile a, a book about, uh, it's called Pandemic 1918. So I picked it up and uh, started reading it. And in that pandemic, you may know, um, 50 to 100 million, it's hard to know how many, but 50 to 100 million people died worldwide. And we haven't seen a pandemic of that magnitude between now and then. So this is the, they have 100-year floods. This is the 100-year pandemic. I was going to ask you, like, what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned to date throughout this? 
Well, the first thing is you have to listen to your, your healthcare professionals. Um, and that's the real challenge that we have at the federal level. The President of the United States, who has um, denigrated and demeaned uh, the healthcare professionals, has withdrawn us from the World Health Organization in the midst of the worst you know, healthcare crisis in the world in 100 years. I mean, I could go on. But, you know, faced with, with a vacuum in terms of, of federal leadership, you know, it's fallen to our governors and to local elected officials at the county and city level uh, to try to figure out what to do, and we're all scrambling. I mean, there should be a national uh, order that everybody wear masks when they go outside. That should be, it's, it's to protect yourself and your, your, your neighbors, you know? When I think about some of the things that I I envision may have, may have been tough calls, I, I think about like, obviously the situation at the jail. Um, I think about Dr. Mason's departure sort of in the midst of a pandemic. I think about the temporary closure of Providence ER. And I'm just curious, like, it seems like a lot of these things have resulted in quite a bit of pushback, whether it's warranted or not, obviously won't get into, but I'm just curious, like, you've had a lot to manage. I mean, how, any of those things worth digging into or I've- Well, I say, I mean, we worked very closely with Sheriff Dart. Uh, both the sheriff and I recognized that the, the jail was gonna be a pain point. I mean, jails are congregate facilities, like nursing homes or cruise ships or battleships. And so we were gonna to have to work really hard to try to contain the virus there. And we, for a while, it was a hot spot. And through the good work of the sheriff's office, the sheriff's staff, and our Bureau of Asset Management, um, you know, we were able to uh, to contain the virus. And we got to the point where um, our COVID-19 positive cases were people coming into the jail from the community rather than uh, cases internally into the in the institution. Um, and you know, I, I, it was last week sometime, you know, that there was a report that the CDC had had commended the sheriff for the way in which he had dealt with the pandemic uh, within the walls of the jail. So, um, you know, we're very, we're very grateful to the sheriff for his, his and, and the sheriff's staff, of course, for their good work. And I'm grateful to our own Bureau of Asset Management people who, who provided the assistance that the sheriff needed. How do you do all of this, everything that needs to be done when you're also sort of facing a massive budget shortfall? Like, obviously, all these things take money, but they need to happen to keep people safe. So what, what is the answer? Starting in May, we, we knew that we were going to be in trouble and we um, began to, to, to take corrective measures. We know now that uh, in the preliminary budget estimate that went out at the end of June, we were, we were anticipating a $290 million shortfall, almost $300 million, with a $410 million shortfall projected for next year. So, you know, everything's on the table to try to address those fiscal challenges. And we will try to do them in the way that uh, has the least harmful impacts on the communities that we have to serve and is mindful of um, the fact that we're trying to look at the challenges we face through an equity lens. You know, something else that I thought was interesting on sort of just like the, the impact to people's health, like the, the side of it, that side of it, is that um, we hear a lot about herd immunity from folks, usually not from doctors, <laughs> but you hear a lot of people talking about herd immunity. And, you know, 
maybe if we, if more people, young people get sick, people who we think might be asymptomatic and not be deeply impacted by this for years to come, like maybe that's the way to, to do this. And um, that is one of the things that was echoed by, I think every medical professional that we've talked to basically is like, hang on, <laughs> like we don't know that that's the case. Um, you know, one of the things that Dr. Elizabeth McNally uh, mentioned to me, and this is the director of Northwestern, uh, the Northwestern Center for Genetic Medicine, but she was saying, one of the, the craziest questions that we still can't answer is why some people get so sick. And we are, for example, rolling out one study, which is to do serology across a lot of Chicago and sampling neighborhoods to understand what exposure looked like across those neighborhoods. Um, we will also reach into our biobank and offer testing to those people. And then we're also testing the, essentially the medical school here, people who were out and working and had exposure there as well. So we will spend certainly a lot of the next year gathering that data. Um, and where we can bring a genetic piece into it, we, we're going to look to do that because we're still very much driven by this question of why do some people get so sick from this? That is what we wish to understand. We know lots of people get this are minimally to not symptomatic at all, and yet some people get so devastatingly ill. And that is the question we have to answer. If we can answer that question, we can actually understand who to protect. We understand it's a small percent of people that get sick, but a small percent of the in entire population is still a ridiculously large number that we can't take care of. So we have to we have to answer that question. Do you have any sense at this point, or is it too early to ask that question? Of, of the answer, I mean. Well, the answer is, you know, we have a couple of good hints from our epidemiology studies. We obviously know that being older is the biggest risk, and the older you are, the higher the risk. Um, and uh, when we look at, like, different people who've had different types of cancers, um, we know that people who have had any history of blood cancers, and especially any recent blood cancers, have a really high risk, almost the same as being old. And in fact, some of the people who were seemingly young and healthy and then got sick were people when they looked at their bone marrow um, had some abnormalities there. So that's telling you the answer is likely and we know it's in the immune response and we know it's probably driven by what the bone marrow capabilities are in terms of immune repertoire. And we have to determine what that is. Um, uh, there are a lot of good hints out of immunology at this point, but if we could screen for that and understand what that risk is, then we can really truly begin to isolate the rest of the, that, that um, really vulnerable population and protect them. Uh, I think the thing about the unemployment rate is it's higher than, you know, potentially it has been in the past or, you know, at its peak, it's comparable to anything we've seen before. But the key thing was how quickly it happened. Economist Damon Jones. Usually a recession gradually comes in. And then we have uh, growing unemployment that continues to grow steadily. We just had a huge spike. I think that we have to put it in the right perspective, which is that was in part by design. I mean, we, we intentionally closed down significant chunks of the economy because the priority was to address the infections, growing infections, and put measures in place to limit that the spread of COVID-19 before we could think about reboosting the economy. So really high unemployment numbers in this context don't mean the same thing as they have in the past. And so relative to other um, recessions, the unemployment rate is not enough for us to make an assessment. It's just one piece. 
and it's very um, disruptive for all these people to lose their uh, jobs. But this is also in part something that we have tried to give people resources to make it through while they're unemployed so that we could limit the spread of the disease. Probably the more frightening thing is the number of deaths that have happened um, as a result of the infection uh, and the spread of the virus. And probably the other thing that's disheartening is that that spike in employment, if that was necessary to stem the spread of infection, it seems like we have somewhat squandered all of that sacrifice by sending mixed messages, having very different policies throughout the country, not having um, maybe the consistent type of leadership that we need. And so if you look at how the U.S. has fared relative to other countries, it looks like we didn't necessarily have to have the path that, we that we've taken in terms of infections. And um, it is very discouraging or disheartening that, you know, we haven't uh, done a better job. What do you think is realistically going to change about um, the nature of employment going forward? Well, I think that in terms of policies, everything we can do to minimize how long this pandemic is going to last is going to have a lasting effect on the economy. So the longer we take our time to address this, the deeper the recession is going to get and the more long lasting the adverse effects are going to be for people in the workforce, families, students, and a bunch of people who are putting a lot of things on pause and missing out on normal activities. I was going to ask you, like, in terms of your living situation, coming home from an environment where you potentially could be exposed at any moment, I mean, what is that yeah. like? Like, you, you have to think about yourself and your patients, obviously, but also your family. Yeah. So especially at the beginning when I was, when we didn't have um, that many COVID patients, although it seemed like it went from very few to like an entire hospital full of patients infected with COVID. Cook County Health Department's infectious disease chair, Dr. Sharon Welbel. I, um, I was seeing most of them uh, just because I was the one who was doing a lot of the COVID work. And so when I came home and then even after that, just even though I was doing less clinical work and doing more administrative work, I was around the hospital and in the COVID units all the time. Your your background is kind of interesting. I mean, this is this is not that foreign of a concept for you, right? Like coming from the, the CDC? Right, exactly. We've been through things like this, but on a different scale, like Ebola, H1N1, MERS, SARS-1. And we really, we, we would have very lengthy conversations and not just infection control, but emergency management and leadership. But um, we really, we knew this was coming essentially. And so, you know, my, our material, the person who manages our materials would have made fun of me because he's like, you're such a hoarder with masks. You know, I was like, we're going to need these N95s. And so we, we really stockpiled um, quite a bit. So we felt pretty prepared in terms of PPE when it first started, of course, like everybody else, shortages did occur. But yeah, we, you know, essentially we knew it was coming. One of the other things that I, I can't stop thinking about as I continue to work on this project is just like 
the sheer scale of death that we've seen in such a short period of time. Um, obviously, you're seeing this firsthand. I mean, this is you're you're treating patients and you're you're seeing who makes it and who doesn't. And I just I don't know. I mean, it, there's that's gonna come with a lot of grief. Like, I just what is it like? What is it like going back to work every day? I mean, not that, not that you've never, you never have to deal with that as a, as a physician, but like, I mean, this has got to be on another level. It really is on another, on another level. It's, it's been incredibly emotional. There's definitely a sense of loneliness to our patients and, and also just the way that this disease, people looking so well and then in a very short time looking very ill. And, and and then being, you know, in critical care for a very long time and, and, and having a whole hospital full of same patients, you know. We, you know, like you say, we often see tragedies, but we don't have a whole hospital full of that. You know, the majority of our patients come in, they, you know, have a problem, we take care of it, and they do fine, right? So it is devastating, it's overwhelming, it's exhausting, and, you know, getting emotional just talking about it. But, yeah, people, it's very difficult. I'm, I appreciate you going there with me, and I, I just want to let you know that I, I, I'm thinking about you and all your colleagues, and I am so grateful for, for everything that you're doing, and I hope that you, you do have a time to take care of yourself. I mean, I know you had one glorious day off in the last few months. Um, I wish you many more. Yeah, no, no, that was the first one. I, I've had a couple since then. Okay, yeah. good. I, ha I have had a couple since then. I do want to say, too, that um, in talking about, well, two things. One is that I think one thing that's particularly hard about working where I work here is that, um, you know, it really, COVID is really just, it's just brought into such sharp relief how healthcare is so inequitable and how marginalized communities, um, you know, really bear the brunt of these disasters. So that it's good and bad. I mean, obviously it's there's nothing really good about it. It's horrible and devastating. It's probably what makes um, the work here difficult. Um, but it's good because it's bringing it to light. And so I think, you know, on the more optimistic side, I think bringing that to light hopefully will bring about change. Um, and then, of course, we have things like vaccines to look forward to. And then, you know, just sort of the extraordinary charitable work that people have done around the globe. Coming up, McDonald's makes face coverings mandatory at all 14,000 of its U.S. restaurants and makes other moves to fight the pandemic. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Chicago Comes Back provides resilient leadership insights to help your business move forward from the pandemic. Delivered on Thursdays, this free e-newsletter features up-to-date information and guidance for Chicago's businesses. Sign up at chicagobusiness.com slash Chicago Comes Back. 
Walgreens Boots Alliance said that Stefano Pacina plans to step down as CEO, a move that comes as the drugstore giant faces the pandemic and longer-term shifts in the pharmacy business. The company said in a statement that Pacina will assume the role of executive chairman after Walgreens appoints a new CEO. James Skinner will step down as executive chairman, but plans to remain on the board to help with the leadership transition. Pacina orchestrated the merger between Walgreens and Alliance Boots, the European pharmacy giant. He became CEO of the combined Walgreens Boots Alliance in 2015, shortly after completing the deal. Along with rival CVS Health, Walgreens dominates the pharmacy business in the U.S. with more than 9,000 stores across the country. Pacina owns more than 16% of the Deerfield-based company, accounting for the bulk of his $8.5 billion fortune, according to the Bloomberg Billionaires Index. Despite Walgreens' mass and its ubiquity, investors have been skeptical of its ability to compete in a market where insurers are squeezing pharmacy sees profits and online retailers are luring customers away from physical stores. And the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic has only heightened those concerns. Earlier this month, Walgreens said it would cut 4,000 jobs in the UK and suspend stock buybacks, citing the effects of the pandemic on its business around the world. The company said Walgreens board will start a search for Piscina's successor. Mayor Lightfoot has introduced a proposal to crack down on party houses that people rent through Airbnb, Verbo, and other vacation rental websites. The change is among a batch of modifications to add more teeth to the city's four-year-old shared housing ordinance, which critics say just isn't tough enough. To discourage party houses, Lightfoot wants to ban one-night stays in short-term rentals and give the city's Department of Business Affairs and Consumer Protection more power to shut them down. The reform package also includes proposals to tighten the licensing process for residents who want to rent their homes through such websites. Under one change, for example, vacation rental hosts would no longer be able to rent out their homes while awaiting a license from the city, which has been a big loophole in the past. More on that in a sec, but for background, the city council passed a comprehensive set of vacation rental regulations in 2016 amid rising concern that some Chicago apartment and condo buildings were turning into hotel hybrids with very few security measures in place. The ordinance limited the number of units in a building that could be rented out on a short-term basis, and it also created a prohibited buildings list, giving condo boards and apartment landlords the option to ban all vacation rentals if they wanted to. So currently, Chicago residents who want to rent out their home through Airbnb, Verbo, or some other platform just have to get a license from the city. But as mentioned, a host can still list a property for rent while awaiting to receive a license, which has been a thing. Under Lightfoot's proposal, hosts would be prohibited from listing their homes for short-term rental until after they get a license. Lightfoot also wants to require vacation rental hosts to apply for licenses directly with the city rather than through the rental platforms and create a tiered fee structure to reduce the cost burden of smaller rental platforms. Because people who use vacation rentals for parties usually only rent a property for a single night, Lightfoot also aims to discourage party houses by banning one-night-only rentals throughout the city. And according to her statement, she also proposes to make it easier for city officials to revoke a host's registration after one illegal party or overcrowding. Northern Trust regains the top spot on Crane's list of Chicago's largest banks after narrowly taking second place last year to BMO Harris Bank, which is this year's number two. Northern Trust also posted the largest growth in assets, up nearly 33% from last year's list, while the next largest assets upswing goes to Signature Bank with just over 22% growth. Trust Illinois and Evergreen Bank Group round out the top four by assets growth percentage with slightly over 21% and 19% increases, respectively. 
Decreases were comparatively small, with bank financial down just over 6%, Providence Bank and Trust declining 3.5%, and Parkway Bank and Trust shrinking just 0.8%. The year's largest return on average equity at 16% goes to Signature Bank, while shareholders at Lakeside Bank saw the next highest return at a bit under 16% and Northern Trust shareholders the third most at nearly 15%. Crane's list of Chicago's largest banks is ranked by assets as of March 31, 2020, and includes the percent change from the prior year as well as figures for each bank's return on average assets, return on average equity, the loans-to-deposit ratio, a breakdown of different loan types by percentage, as well as non-performing loans and the percentage of assets they represent. To see the full list, subscribe to Crane's all-access and data package and head on over to Crane's data center. McDonald's is about to require all customers to wear face masks at its 14,000 U.S. restaurants. The Chicago-based company also announced it's delaying plans to reopen its dining rooms for another 30 days. The requirement for face coverings starts on August 1st, and customers who come in without a mask will be given one. Those who refuse to wear a mask will get their order expedited and will be served in an area away from other customers. The company said in a statement late last week, the public health crisis continues with one million new COVID-19 cases in the last two weeks alone. Continuing, while nearly 82 percent of our restaurants are in states or localities that require facial coverings for both crew and customers today, it's important we protect the safety of all employees and customers. In May, McDonald's prepared to open dining rooms with guidelines and safety procedures for franchisees. Then the chain halted that plan nationwide on July 1st and called for a 21-day pause. According to the statement, the dining room delay means the chain will not approve the reopening of any additional dining rooms and said that locally, any dining room rollback decisions should be guided by state and local guidance. Adding, this continues to be an owner-operator-led decision. The statement also says that the company's developed divider panels and barriers for the customer areas of restaurants and for back-of-the-house operations designed to allow owner-operators to increase order-taking and seating capacity as well as staffing levels while continuing to meet social distancing guidelines. Adding that the panels are an additional safety measure and not a replacement for consistent PPE execution or adherence to social distancing guidelines. And that's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Our continuous news feed lives at chicagobusiness.com. Be sure to subscribe to these conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. And find hashtag Crane's Daily Gist on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And let's continue talking there about these and other business stories. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.